Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Fort Mose Jazz and Blues Concert Series is raising funds to build a reconstruction of Fort Mose. Board members who've been trying to get this reconstruction since the 1990s. So it's a feather in their cap, and it's a great thing for the state of Florida, and I'd say the U.S., and as UNESCO tells us, for the world. We'll discuss the real and imagined Florida. Practices of documenting and imagining Florida shapes our understanding of time and historical change. And talk about Desi Arnaz in Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Gladys Knight is one of the performers in the Fort Mose Jazz and Blues Concert Series, along with Mavis Staples, Rhiannon Giddens, Valerie June, Christian McBride's New John, and Christone Kingfish Ingram. The concert series takes place February 10th through 19th on the grounds of Fort Mose Historic State Park. The concerts are raising funds to pay for a reconstruction of Fort Mose. Established in 1738, Fort Mose was the first legally sanctioned black settlement in what would become the United States. Chip Story is on the board of the Fort Mose Historical Society. Spain, France, and England were all combating for control of North America, and Spain wasn't too happy with the British coming down from New England and the southern states of Virginia, Carolinas, and the British weren't so happy about the Spanish in Florida. But St. Augustine was underpopulated. So... In order to build up a larger population in St. Augustine and to tweak the noses of the British, in 1688, King Philip V of Spain said that any enslaved person who made it to Florida would be given freedom. And the trickle started then and it got larger. And by 1738, the governor of Florida decided to create a community, Fort Mose. And if you were able to get there, and you swore allegiance to the Spanish crown and became Catholic, you were given land and your freedom. And the males had to serve in the militia, but the women did not, obviously. And the women could farm and the kids could farm and everyone was a lot happier. Women didn't have to be wet nurses or concubines, didn't have to pick things. The kids didn't have to pick things and the men had guns. Located north of St. Augustine, Fort Mose was the first line of defense for the Spanish against British invaders from the north. Chip Story. The existence of the fort obviously didn't please the British because A, their property was getting lost by coming to Florida, and B, there was this example of 
Africans holding guns. And in fact, the year after Fort Mose was established in South Carolina, there was the Stono Rebellion. And this is a situation in which enslaved Africans were able to get guns and rose up against the British. And they were hoping to get to Fort Mose. These enslaved people were defeated. But the British didn't like this uh, example that Fort Mose on the outskirts of St. Augustine represented. And so in 1740, under Governor Oglethorpe of Georgia, they came to St. Augustine and attacked Fort Mose in what was called the Battle of Bloody Mose. And the formerly enslaved Africans fought back fiercely. You know, it's their freedom at stake. And with the people at Castillo San Marcos, the two forts defeated the British and the British went back to Georgia. In the process, Fort Mose, which was not as soundly constructed as Castillo San Marcos or Fort Matanzas was destroyed and many of the residents moved into St. Augustine. 1752, the new governor of Florida didn't want so many Africans in town. And so he suggested you build another fort, sort of ordered in fact, not suggested. 1752, the second Fort Mose is constructed and that stays in place until the uh, Spanish leave Florida when the British take over in 1763. Fort Mose Historic State Park features a boardwalk that provides a view of where Fort Mose was located. A museum on the site displays artifacts uncovered in archaeological digs on the site. A large open space behind the museum provides an area for historical reenactments and now a jazz and blues concert series. Ryan Hall is with St. John's Cultural Events. That organization provides logistics for the concert series, from providing food trucks, erecting a stage with lighting, and setting seats for up to 1,000 people. Our production team is incredible. We have a lot going on all the time, but we really wanted to make this a really special event. And so you can see through pictures from last year's series, like how great it looks, but until you're actually on site and you get that feeling and you see the energy and like you feel the history and the fusion of jazz and blues on top of it all, it just makes for a really unique experience and something that we're really proud of. Ryan Hall says that the artists participating in the Fort Mose Jazz and Blues concert series are aware of the site's historical significance. When we were speaking with various artists for this next series, so we always wanted to make a point of like, this is why we are doing this Jazz and Blues series. This is the history of Fort Mose. This is this unique experience, this opportunity that you could be part of. And so when we were speaking with Gladys Knight's team, it turns out that she was so excited about the opportunity that they actually kind of rearranged her entire tour schedule just so that she could make sure and be part of it this year. Um, Mavis Staples, who has, uh, you know, been in Jacksonville, St. Augustine area several times over the years, she's also very privy to the history of Fort Mose, and she really wanted to be there to support and be part of it as well. But then you also have like Rhiannon Giddens, Kristen Kingfish Ingram, um, everyone that we were speaking with this year was aware. And last year, we had the legendary Count Basie Orchestra, which is directed by Scotty Barnhart. And so when we were speaking with them and his team, he was just blown away at the fact that there was going to be a jazz and blues series on site at Fort Mose. He knows the history in and out. And so we were really like pleased to hear that. So yeah, we're just, we're wanting to find artists that are passionate about this series, about the cause, about, you know, promoting awareness of Fort Mose itself. So it's really, it's been very special. In 1994, Fort Mose was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. 
In 2019, UNESCO designated the area as a slave route project site of memory. Chip Story says that building a reconstruction of Fort Mose is important. Jokingly, there's finally a fort so that when kids come to visit, they're not saying, Mom and Dad, you told me there's a fort, but there isn't one. On a more serious vein, again, this is the first free Black community legally recognized, sanctioned by both Spain and the British recognized it. So it's hugely important. It's the kind of thing that if I were a Yiddish speaker, I would say it makes you kvel. I mean, it it's just uh, makes one proud. And there are still digs going on, archaeological digs. So people are finding things on the grounds that show both the military and the community history. And having the reconstruction there just makes things much more visible for a greater number of people coming to St. Augustine and to Fort Mose. It really helps put this important site in the limelight in a way that thus far it has not been. And it's kind of the culmination of the efforts of a lot of board members. I'm not one of them, but board members who've been trying to get this reconstruction since the 1990s. So it's a feather in their cap, and it's a great thing for the state of Florida, and I'd say the U.S., and as UNESCO tells us, for the world. The Fort Mose Jazz and Blues Concert Series is being held February 10th through 19th at Fort Mose Historic State Park. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can listen to archived editions of this program and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. But it was just my imagination Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, historians like Gary Mormino have long recognized that Florida is not only a distinctive place with its own history, it also exists in the imagination. Mormino's Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams is perhaps the most comprehensive examination of the real and imagined Florida. But other historians have also grappled with the interplay between imagined expectation and real experience that characterizes insightful analyses of Florida history. In 2012, Julian C. Chambliss, a Rollins College professor in history, and his Rollins colleague, Denise K. Cummings, who taught critical media and cultural studies, edited a special issue of the Quarterly on The Mediated State. As they explained, the six articles that made up the special issue filled a gap that had emerged in the current historiography of the post-World War II Florida history. Mormino's book, as well as Jack Davis and Raymond Arsenault's Paradise Lost, and Robert Casanello and Melanie Shell Weiss's Florida Working Class Past, had explored the intersection of the state's political and economic concerns. 
Chambliss and Cunnings sought to reevaluate Florida's impact on the broader cultural dialogue about the post-war transformation of the United States. The essays they included analyzed the dynamic between popular cultural outputs and lived reality. If that sounds too academic, it simply means that the contributors to the special issue analyzed books, television, architecture, documentary film, and the free flow of thought to understand how practices of documenting and imagining Florida shapes our understanding of time and historical change. By looking at culture, they argue, we can understand that Florida, as a contested space with interconnected communities, multiple origins, and blended identities, Viewing the cultural output provides a platform for assessing the changing nature of the national identity impacted by the post-World War II culture of consumption, leisure, and growth. Connie, tell us a bit more about the contributors to this special issue. Who were they and what were their various areas of expertise? The contributors spanned a range of cultural expertise and included a historian, a literary scholar, an environmental historian, an architectural theorist, and a new media rhetorician. Allison Meek investigated the relevance of the television program Miami Vice in counteracting the negative media image of Miami that prevailed in the 1980s. In her conclusion, she quotes Steve Sonsky of the Miami Herald. Miami advice invented Miami in the eyes of the world. There was no surprise. What was unusual was how Miami then brought into this vision how a city reinvented itself in the stylized, glamorized image that a TV show had of it. David Miller Parker used the dystopian literature of Carl Heisen to analyze the consequences of excess and poor planning in South Florida. He concludes Hyacinth's fictional Florida is dystopian for the sheer awfulness of his many characters and what they have done to the land, even as he reminds readers that it remains an unspoiled paradise in those areas that remain undeveloped. Charlie Haley invokes the cherished ideas represented by the front porch as a social space, offering a site for exchange and engagement with the environmental paradise linked to Florida. He bases his analysis on writings of a number of Florida authors, including Marjorie Kennan Rawlings' use of her porch as a space for writing, Harriet Beecher Stowe's porch as a site for interaction with passing tourists, Zora Neale Hurston's reference to the sleeping porch as a space for belonging, and Ernest Hemingway's elevated Key West porch. Finally, he uses the porch to link the 19th century frontier to the new urbanism of seaside and celebration with the return of the front porch. Leslie Poole, an environmental historian, writes about the 2007 documentary film In Marjorie's Wake, which recreates the historic 1933 trip undertaken by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings from the marshy headwaters of the St. Johns River in central Florida to the Ocklawaha River, a distance of more than 100 miles. Poole argues that Rawlings' work and the St. Johns remain inspirations capable of drawing people together to forge a sense of place that is critical to environmental activism. Finally, Jeff Rice, a rhetorician theorist offers a self-reflective essay titled Miami Stories, 
that operates as an associative and written journey through the mental connections between popular cultural landmarks that include music lyrics, novels, television episodes, movie scenes, and short stories. When combined with his own experiences, Rice's landmarks can be read as touchstones of history that can be mined and then claimed through the act of writing. The Mediated State Special Issue offers a history based on the writings of non-historians and the impact of those writings in shaping our understanding of the reality of Florida. A fascinating look at our cultural history. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Just my This is Florida Frontiers. Before gaining national recognition on the TV show I Love Lucy, Desi Arnaz was a very popular musician in Miami. Holly Baker has more. Lucy, I'm home. Generations of television viewers recognized that famous greeting by Ricky Ricardo in the popular I Love Lucy show that aired from 1951 to 1957. Before he brought Ricky Ricardo to life, Cuban-born Desi Arnaz was a musician known as Miami's own conga king. In 1937, he ignited the conga dance craze in Miami Beach at the Park Central Hotel, located at 640 Ocean Drive. Florida native Gary McKechnie is a writer, speaker, and the organizer of the Desi Arnaz historical marker to be placed at the Park Central Hotel, the place where he introduced America to the conga craze. Desi and his father, they're allowed to leave Cuba miraculously in 1934, and they land in Key West, and the mother stays back in Cuba. She joins them later. Here you go. You've got this kid about 16 years old coming to America, but he really doesn't understand the culture. He doesn't really understand the language, and he's trying to make his way. His father and he go from Key West to Miami. All of a sudden, they're looking for work. What do we do? Fortunately, there were some other refugees in the city, someone who knew his father. So through that connection, Desi was able to enroll at St. Patrick's uh, Catholic High School in Miami. And he's starting to learn English. He's starting to assimilate in the culture. But it was no longer his father as a powerful politician. It was no longer his father as a doctor. It was his father as a manual laborer. And the incredible thing is his father had this attitude, and I think a lot of Desi's success comes from his dad. No matter how bad things were, he was always saying, there has to be a way. There has to be a way. That was his mantra. And anytime something would go wrong, his father would think there has to be a way and figure it out. And that was just planted in Desi's mind. When they arrived from Cuba, Desi Arnaz helped his father lay tile in Miami Beach homes. He worked at Woolworths and even had a job cleaning canary cages for 25 cents a cage. After finishing high school, Desi Arnaz, a musician at heart, found a way to make money through his love for music. In 1937, he performed the song Bubaloo during an audition to be a singing guitarist at the Roney Plaza Hotel. Xavier Cugat heard the audition, hired Desi Arnaz as a vocalist, and brought him on tour. 
Desi Arnaz eventually left Cougat's orchestra and struck out on his own. He went to Park Central Hotel in Miami Beach looking for a job. There he met Bobby Kelly, son of entrepreneurial restaurateur Mother Kelly, who was opening a 200-seat nightclub as an addition to the brand-new Park Central Hotel. Advertising himself as Cougat's star performer and promising to bring along an orchestra, Desi was hired for a two-week engagement. Unfortunately, at his debut, it was obvious that his orchestra was really just a handful of musicians who couldn't play the Latin music that Arnez had promised. What he ends up with is like five musicians, none of which know Latin music, none of which have any Latin instruments. It's like a saxophone player, <laughs> a piano player, a guy with a double bass, you know, no marimbas, no maracas, no guitars. It's just like, oh my God, Desi's thinking, what do I do with this? So they go and they have a quick rehearsal, like a two-hour rehearsal, and they go to the club that night, and they're wearing ruffled sleeves, and they're dressed Latin, but they just don't know any Latin music. So they play their first set, and they're horrible. And Desi Arnaz is thinking, I'm never going to get a job ever. Now, keep in mind, he's 20 years old, and he's leading a band for the first time. <laughs> he's thinking, this is it. I'm done for. So Desi thinks there has to be a way and he gets the band together and he goes behind the bar and he gets a bottle of Bacardi rum. And he said, it's the first and only time he's done this. He let his band get drunk. And what he was doing, he was thinking about Santiago Cuba and a dance called the conga. And he said, this would be these huge breakout parties that would go from one village to the next, to the next, to the next city. And it would just be this procession of people who were totally hypnotized by the conga rhythm, that dun, 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 dun. And he said it would go from dawn to dusk. And he's thinking, hey, these guys can't play Latin music, but certainly they can play a conga beat. Desi Arnaz strapped on his conga drum and taught the orchestra the rhythm. Improvising the scene, they started playing the conga beat. Arnaz created a conga line that snaked around the dance floor and continued out into the streets. All of a sudden, just like in Cuba, everybody is hypnotized by this. Desi's now really getting into it. His musicians are getting into it. Everybody is, it's like a rapture. And he walks out the door and he's banging his drum and the musicians are with him. And people start walking down or marching literally down Ocean Drive. And Desi's leading the way with his conga drum and musicians back into the bar. And people were just exhausted and exhilarated. And Bobby Kelly goes, hey, I want to extend your contract. <laughs> you know, it was, it was this moment. Desi said the conga was his dance of desperation because he had no other outlet. He had no other way to get the crowd on his side. So he goes back the next night and he does it. And crowds just start building and building. All of a sudden, Desi is now the 20-year-old king of the conga. And they call the nightclub. Lakanga. They were going to call it Desi's Place. He said, no, call it Lakanga. To land in Miami in 1934, hardly knowing the language, sleeping in a warehouse, to four years later, you're the toast of Miami, you're the king of the conga. And that sort of initiative is just so admirable. Desi Arnaz also played at the Roni Plaza Hotel, the Clay Hotel, and other local venues. But based on his autobiography, the Park Central Hotel was where he had his dance of desperation that started the conga craze in America. 
The publicity that followed raised his profile and led him first to Broadway and then to Hollywood, where he met the love of his life, Lucille Ball. That's why it's the ideal location for a historical marker dedicated to Desi Arnaz. Gary McKechnie. I read for probably the third time Desi Arnaz's autobiography earlier this year. And it's, it's called A Book, and it's hard to get. It's out of print now. But I keep a copy around, and I read it every time I need inspiration in you know a good laugh and a good Hollywood story, a good show business story, a good really a good American story. And when I read that and I read the part about him in Miami Beach, I thought they're doing documentaries now and docudramas about Lucille Ball. There's fan clubs for Lucy and deservedly so. And there's a museum, the Comedy Museum in Jamestown, New York, pretty much dedicated to Lucy. And I realized there's no real recognition for Desi Arnaz. And then I remembered having written for Visit Florida and having written a few articles about the Florida Historic Marker Program, I thought, why isn't there a tribute to Desi Arnaz? So I thought, well, because nobody's done it, I should do it. This guy, he's too good of an American, too good of a person not to honor, not to remember. The fan-funded project to obtain a historical marker for Desi Arnaz at the location of the former Park Central Hotel, now known as the Gabriel, is supported by the Arnaz family and the city of Miami. Gary McKechnie created two websites where people can learn more about Desi Arnaz and contribute to the fundraiser for the historical marker. I bought two websites, thankyoudesiarnez.com and graciasdesiarnez.com, because like the sign, the websites are in English and Spanish. So the sign will be in English on one side and Spanish on the other. So everyone will be able to um, understand why we owe a debt of gratitude to Desi Arnaz. Think of how much enjoyment and laughter that man in Lucio Ball created. And if you go to thankyoudesiarnez.com, there's links to GoFundMe where you can pitch in $5, 10 $20 and play a role in this. And anything in excess of $2,500 would go toward programs that help Cuban refugees in Miami or assist maybe English as a second language, just helping the community so his legacy will live on. On the day that the historical marker will be placed at 640 Ocean Drive, Gary McKechnie hopes there'll be a huge celebration in Desi Arnaz's honor with a conga line, celebrity guests, musicians, and even Lucy and Ricky Ricardo costume contests. The historical marker will be a heartfelt tribute to Miami's conga king and one of America's most beloved stars. Aside from a few blocks of concrete on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, there's a real absence of tributes to Desi Arnaz. You know, there's absolutely no downside to this. And that's why I'm so thrilled because I was looking for a positive outlet, something to, uh, focus on. The pandemic has knocked the wind out of a lot of us. And the news seems bad almost every day. And it's just nice to shift gears and create a positive project that will be there to recognize someone that we all can admire. If you'd like to take part in this historic tribute to Desi Arnaz, visit thankyoudesiarnaz.com or graciasdesiarnaz.com, where you can read his story and make a donation. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.